Welcome to Be With Champions. I'm your host, Greg Bennett. And today I have an incredibly open and honest chat with arguably one of the greatest Ironman athletes ever, Chrissy Wellington. Chrissy shares some really phenomenal stories in this chat and, and we get a real sneak peek behind the mind of a champion. I even love at one point when she's describing her very first Ironman World Championship title and she was running down a leahy drive to the finishing line and she could hear these faint kind of boos or what she thought were people booing from the sideline only to find out that they were the Hawaiian horns that they, they do when they celebrate the, the, the winner coming down a leahy drive. And then as she approached the finishing tape, she wasn't sure whether she should throw her hands in the air or not because she couldn't remember if she'd shaved her armpits. I just, I love the honesty of this conversation. Chrissy gives so many great takeaways on mental strategies and the process of becoming a champion and what you need to do on any given day. I just simply loved how many takeaways she gave us in this chat. And I just really appreciated her coming on. A quick bit of housekeeping. Um, if you go to bennettendurance.com forward slash media, you can find all the show notes, timestamps, coupon codes, and links there. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and, and share it. I'd really appreciate that. I'm loving all the reviews and feedback. It just helps me uh, try and improve the show for you guys. I am listening and I'll do everything I can to get back to you if you uh, contact me on social media. Enjoy this one. I really did. Before we start, I've got to give a quick shout out to the brands that make this show possible. The only brands I'm working with are brands that provide products that I use daily and truly believe in. These products support my immunity, they help improve my recovery and my focus. First up, my friends at Athletic Greens. I love this company and I love their all-in-one daily drink. It's become a part of my morning routine. I'm heavily focused on supporting my immunity and boosting my energy and, and helping my gut health, but I want to do it naturally. And I found that support with Athletic Greens, a whole food sourced green drink that tastes great and there's no hassle. It's delivered straight to your door. And it's a highly absorbable powder that takes seconds to mix with water so there's no clumpiness to deal with. I can't believe a green drink sourced from Whole Foods can actually taste so good. Personally, I truly love it. It's developed from a complex blend of 75 vitamins and minerals. It's packed with aptogens for recovery, probiotics and digestive enzymes for gut health, and vitamin C and zinc citrate for immune support. So Athletic Greens is designed to help fill the nutritional gaps in your diet. And there's a great offer going on now for you to give it a try. Simply go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg to claim our special offer of 20 free tra daily travel packets with your first order. $79 added value. And get Athletic Greens delivered straight to your door. Again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. This show is also brought to you by my friends at Hyperice. Some of these products I've been using for almost a decade. Makers of the award-winning Hypervolt the world's most powerful percussion massage device featuring quiet glide technology. Hyperice is a wellness tech company that makes devices designed to help you move better. From handheld massage devices to vibrating foam rollers, thermal technology, and the Normatec compression systems, Hyperice helps you warm up faster, recover quicker, and simply move better. Used in professional training rooms throughout the NBA, the NFL, MLB, the MLS, Ironman, and other professional organizations for well over a decade, designed to help improve circulation, flexibility, and relieve tension. Get $50 off all percussion devices now, no code needed, and get an additional 10% off with code GREG10 at hyperice.com. That's hyperice.com, H-Y-P-E-R-I-C-E. 
E-R-I-C-E.com and use code GREG10 for 10% off. And finally, I want to give a huge shout out to my mushroom buddies at Four Sigmatic and they're tremendous supporters of this show. An incredible wellness company that mixes shrooms and aptogens with coffee, cocoa latte, protein powder, and even edible skincare products. One of my staples is a mushroom coffee with lion's mane. And wow, I just love how much more productive and creative and, and clear thinking I am. Plus, it includes chaga, which is the king of the mushrooms. Right now, chaga is my favorite functional mushroom. The compounds and antioxidant properties of chaga play a big role in supporting our immune system and maintaining its function. You're probably thinking, ah, does this coffee taste like mushrooms? And I can guarantee you it just tastes like regular coffee and not like mushrooms at all. Best of all, Four Sigmatic stands behind their products unconditionally with a 100% money-back guarantee. Love every sip or get your money back. And of course, we have a special offer for you as a Be With Champions listener. Receive 15% off your Four Sigmatic order. Just go to foursigmatic.com forward slash Greg or enter code Greg at checkout. That is F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash Greg to receive 15% off your order. All right, my guest today had one of the most impactful triathlon careers in the history of the sport. Becoming a professional triathlete in 2007, she went on to win four Ironman world titles, smashing course records and world records at the iron distance seemingly every time she raced. A five-year career that left a mark on the world of endurance sport like no other. Her resume is just simply incredible. She won an Ironman World Championship on three consecutive occasions, 07, 08, and 09, and won on her debut in 07, which is basically unheard of in the sport of triathlon. She wasn't able to start in 2010 due to illness, but regained her title again in 2011 after crashing a bike only two weeks previous. She lowered the Ironman distance world record each time she raced Challenge Roth. Her fastest time there being eight hours, 18 minutes. That was 32 minutes in front of second place. There's too many highlights to go through in this introduction. Just an incredible athlete, a remarkable human, a friend of mine for many, many years. So welcome and thank you for joining me on Be With Champions, Chrissy Wellington. How are you, Chrissy? <laughs> thank you. The honor's all mine. It's great to have the chance to speak to you and catch up again. It's been a, lot, yeah. been a long time. Where, where are you chatting to me from at the moment? Um, we're based in a small village in Somerset, so about 30 minutes south of Bristol in the southwest of England. And it's actually a wonderful day today. We've had the hottest day of the year. Not normally <laughs> like that, but yeah, glorious sunshine. <laughs> well, well I'm, in, I'm in South Florida at the moment and, and sunshine's an understatement. It's kind of, I've never felt heat quite like South Florida summers, actually. I'm like, wow, I've raced in Borneo and Mexico, but a South Florida summer is oppressive. Like, it's, it, yeah. it's oppressive. It's next level. The last time we <laughs> caught up, what was that? It was like Noosa National Park. Randomly, we just saw you running. Hadn't seen you for five or six years, and there you were in Noosa National Park. Do you remember that? Where was? It? When was? Yeah. That? It, so that was the first time um, I ever visited Noosa. So I never went there to train as an athlete, unfortunately, because I'd heard great things about it, and and you know, a number of my training partners um, have have trained out of there, and when. Our daughter, Esme, was born about nine months after her birth. We decided to go on a little round-the-world trip for three months. So we went through the west coast of America, uh, then flew to Australia, and uh, sorry, New Zealand, and then Australia, and um, traveled down the east coast of Australia. And 
obviously stopped in stopped in Nusa. I was going for my morning run and bumped into, <laughs> bumped into you. It's serendipity, isn't it? I I've lo- I love those kind of sliding doors <laughs> moments. Yeah. But no, it was great to actually experience Nusa because, like I said, I've heard some fantastic things about it, and it definitely lived up to all of my expectations. Absolutely beautiful place. Yeah, it's, it's, I, I didn't do that much training when I was there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was random, I think, because Laura and I were only in Noosa for ten days or something. We hadn't been there for a year, and we haven't been there back back since. And uh, but tell me about that that um that trip down the east coast of Australia is something else, isn't it? The beaches and everything. It's just if anybody's going to pick a trip, that's an an amazing one to do. Did you guys drive and camp, or how did you? Yeah, do that we we got an RV. Um, and we traveled down from uh, kind of the Daintree rainforest right at the top back down to Brisbane. And it was just a phenomenal way of seeing the country and, and stopping wherever we wanted. And Esme being, well, 10 months, 10 or 11 months by the time we reached Australia was relatively portable, although she did learn to walk quite early. So what we thought was a portable baby was actually a liability by the time we got to Australia because she was kind of tottering, tottering everywhere. But no, it was phenomenal to, to travel travel the East Coast of Australia in, in the Australian summer and just see some absolutely phenomenal scenery. Um, yeah, it's beautiful, absolutely beautiful there. Look, I, I, I want we could keep, keep this kind of small talk going, but Honestly, I was doing homework for this and what I couldn't believe is that your career as a professional athlete was five years long. <laughs> Probably because, the shortest ever career. Because, no, <laughs> what was extraordinary is, like I said in the introduction, it's just the the impact of your career, that it felt like you were around for forever. And, and, and I don't mean that in a way, it was just like what you did, you didn't muck around. And- you're an all or nothing kind of person. I think, do you live your life at like a 10 out of 10 or a zero for full recovery and never any in between? Is that <laughs> yeah, how you operate? You got me figured out. <laughs> <laughs> because, I mean, I, 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 you know, doing the homework and, and I touched on a few of your highlights in the, in up above, you know, you started your professional career at 30. And I need to know, how did you get to the point of being 30 and then sort of pulling the trigger and going all in. So what I want to do, and I've done it with numerous guests on this show, I do want to just wind the clock back because how does somebody that doesn't look like they've had a triathlon or an athletic background or endurance sport just come on to blast the world, change, I think, women's racing beyond what we've ever seen before? The impact was just incredible. So let's step back. Let's take me back to how it all began and when did you first fall in love with endurance sport and what kind of a background in sport did you have before that? Yeah, I think you're right that I took a slightly unconventional path to professional sport. Um, It wasn't a stereotypical journey in that I grew up as a youngster aspiring to be a professional athlete or indeed a professional triathlete. Um, It certainly wasn't like that. For me, I I was always very driven, determined, very competitive, very kind of obsessive in everything I did. But I I channeled all of that as a youngster into academia. So all I aspired for was academic excellence. And sport was something I very much did for fun, you know, for the social side of things. So I joined the local swimming club, but I definitely never... Re, you know, 
fulfilled any kind of potential I may or, or may not have had at, at that stage. I wasn't racing at even county level in the UK, let alone national or or global level. And then I went to university and as many people do, um, found socialising um, to be much more preferable to uh, swimming. So I joined the swimming team. Um, I drank for them quite well, actually, but I, I <laughs> wasn't very well known for my, my swimming prowess. And then... Um, so this is going to be quite a long story, um, long drawn out story. So bear with me. But when I graduated from my undergraduate degree, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer um, and signed for a law firm in London. And they agreed that I could go traveling. So I bought a round the world ticket, started off in Africa. And I saw some amazing, incredible, beautiful things. But then I also saw abject poverty, and you know, deprivation at a level, you know, at a scale I've never seen before. And it ignited this fire in me and I started to question my decision to go into law. And I spoke to my friend and she said, you know, Chrissy, look deep inside yourself, work out what your passion really is. And Greg, I'd never done that. I was was always following a path that I thought was expected of me. And I'd chosen law because it was a label. It was a vindication almost of all the hard work of you know, academic strength, if you weren't, if you will. And, but it wasn't actually what I was really, really interested in. So I did a lot of soul searching, introspection, a lot of listening, a lot of reading. And I realized that I wanted to follow a different path and that was international development. So I did my MA in development economics and that's when I started running, but it was as a, almost as a mental respite from the stresses that I put myself under academically. I needed this release. And I I wasn't a runner, in inverted commas. I got very red when I ran, so I got embarrassed, so I ran very early. And (laughs) I, I just discounted running as not being for me. And then I spoke to my friend, and she'd run the London Marathon, and she'd had a heart defect. And, you know, as we do, we're inspired by all these amazing people around us. And I was so incredibly inspired by her that she'd run the London Marathon. And so I entered the London Marathon and then trained in a quite unknowledgeable, obsessive way. And I ran the London Marathon in 2002. And in answer to your question, I think that was when I was... I developed a passion for endurance sports. Definitely not triathlon, but but endurance Mm. sports. And I realised through running that, A, how much I enjoyed it. Um, And also that I had a capacity for, you know, maybe endurance running, endurance activities that I may not have have recognised or explored previously. So I started training to run a sub three hour marathon and typically got injured and started swimming. Um, to maintain fitness and then again meeting someone a role model you know someone that would influence the direction of my life and he suggested I do a triathlon this is in 2004 I borrowed all of you know all of the kit did a few sprint distance triathlons but then I um, stepped off the path again at that point I was working for the government uh, as a policy advisor on international development policy, and knew that I needed to get some experience working in development on the ground, went and lived and work in Nepal, worked in um, Nepal. And 
are although people think as a professional athlete I came from nowhere so you know you burst onto the scene in 2007 and you win the world championships every athlete comes from somewhere so I had a foundation it wasn't a conventional foundation but I had a foundation that I think was based on um a breadth of experience I guess but also the strength this physical strength this and this psychological strength that I developed when I was cycling day in day out when I wasn't working in Nepal um you know we traveled 1500 kilometers over the Himalayas at 5000 meters mm. and it's just I think it's those experiences that shaped me into the athlete that I became so I it wasn't the case as is with many of the people that that you've interviewed that they see a triathlon on television and they're so inspired and you know from the age of 17 that's all they've ever wanted to do it just wasn't the case for me but I'd be lying if I said that I hadn't built this um foundation in endurance activities but in a in another way so in 2000 after a bit of I, I cycled toward around Tasmania around some South America came back to the UK in 2006 and that's when I thought oh I'll give you know give triathlon a go the first race was diabolical and I sank, sank in the swim and had to be rescued um, then I decided to get a coach and I managed to qualify for the world age group championships which were in Lausanne um, that Tim Don actually won and um I watched him from the sidelines absolutely in awe I mean I'm still in awe of Tim Don but you know in awe of of his his performance I remember also watching Lizzie Blatchford and Lizzie is someone I have such incredible respect for having trained with her since she is the most phenomenally talented athlete and an even nicer person and anyway I remember watching her and being blown away but and I won that race. I won the World Age Group Championships, age 29. And that was my fork in the road. Mm. Um, it, it's, I, I love all of that because it's like you said, the experiences you, you gained, I think almost more the, the psychological, the, the mental strategies you probably developed by being in Nepal, seeing what you did, you know, seeing what you saw in, in Africa and the underprivileged and going about and trying to make change in those uh, more poverty-stricken places in the world, that you start to change as a person in a way which is the opportunity that then you then have when you get back to the UK feels you feel more empowered. You've, you, you've seen that you are somewhat privileged and that you do get to have these opportunities. So on the harder days, did that then affect you in the way that you were able to, your attitude of gratitude? Did that yeah. move forward like that? Really interesting. Yeah. In, really interesting question. We're motivated by many things, many carrots, many sticks. But for me, I just felt incredibly blessed to have the opportunity presented to me at a re relatively older age for a professional triathlete to make a career out of a sport but I I was motivated by this opportunity to gain a platform and a voice um, and that was always really really important to me to use sport as a as a vehicle because it is quite a selfish self-absorbed self pursuit isn't it it's all about you and your goal but we can all do things with it and some 
might do it to raise money for charitable causes, to speak about different causes, you know, you know, become financially secure so they can raise a family. All of those things are of valid reasons. Um, for me, it was, yeah, of course, an opportunity to compete against the best in the world and um, to travel to, to some phenomenal places and to see how good I could be at, at something. Of course, all of those things motivated me. But I was also motivated by the opportunity, like I said, to, to gain a voice. And my first coach, Brett, who you obviously know well, could read me like a book. And he tapped into those motivations. And I, I remember him very clearly at, at the start when I, when I first started training under him and was questioning why on earth I was uh, committing myself to this kind of selfish pursuit and he said to me you know Chrissy just you wait um through your achievements in the sport you can achieve more out of it than you could ever have imagined and that was incredibly insightful but very clever in that he was tapping into those really deep motivations that I had and that ignited a fire in me because I thought yes there's a there's a real point to this mm-hmm. you know and um, his prophecy to some extent came true. And even though we're in a minority sport that's becoming more mainstream, you know, you, you do have a voice and you do have a, a, a small platform. It's incredible the insight that he had, the the ability to see that you were struggling with the, the concept of it being somewhat of a, a selfish sport that you you need to be all in and focusing on yourself and physically, mentally, emotionally, it's all of that. It is consuming, especially if you're trying to be the best in the world as, as you were. And, you know, f- for me, that wasn't a difficult task for us. For you, it sounded like it was a harder thing to take on. And, and I know for my wife, Laura, it was also a more difficult task going kind of, well, well what's really going on here and, and why are we doing it? And, and I think- Very different, Greg. It was a very different life. I think if you've grown up doing that, it's it's your normal, right? But for me, it was just such a different way of being. And But gradually, yes, it became an all-consuming occupation, you know, maybe to my detriment sometimes um, in that I couldn't see the wood for the trees sometimes. Um, but, yeah, a very initially it was just such an alien environment to be in and an alien way of living um f- for me um but yeah, that- yeah but i but, but i think understanding your your reason why you're doing something can be can be the real give you that real empowerment and, and drawing upon it being not just a selfish reason but i want to be able to have this platform and, and whether it be charities whether it be women in sport, um, what, whatever you were working towards, which I know you, you worked with a number of causes and, 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 and I think have been really recognised for that in the UK. You, you, you now were awarded an OBE from the <laughs> Queen, which, you know, I think it goes, as it goes, uh, what are the titles? I, I can't remember, but you're on your way to knighthood as far as I can tell. And it's quite an honour to be recognised um, for not only what you did within the sport, but then what you did with the the success you had from the sport. Um, but I just want to keep keep tapping back into 
your travel up to becoming a professional triathlete because I think it is it is a fascinating story. When you first did that marathon back in 2002, was that a when was it that you were kind of like, "Huh, I've got some natural ability. I'm pretty strong at this." Was that that race? Did you get an indicator that I'm a I'm a I I am a kind of a natural athlete and perhaps I have something here to give? Um I ran on that day, I ran three hours and eight, um, but I would never um, want to imply that I'm, I am a world-class runner. I, I'm, I'm not. <laughs> I wasn't, and I, I don't think I <laughs> – well, I definitely never will be. You know, my, I, I don't think I ever thought that I could become a professional runner. Um, it was really at the world – age group championships in Lausanne Mm. that I realized that I had the potential to compete on a global stage, but only ever with an eye on trying to qualify for the Olympics the next year. And, And that was a incredibly long shot, you know, knowing how deep the, the, British women's field was it was it was an incredibly long shot but for me I I mean I didn't even know what an Ironman was at that stage (laughs) you know it it just it didn't even cross my mind that I would become a professional triathlete and focus on Ironman um and it was it was Brett that suggested slash kind of (laughs) strong-armed me into you know, first doing Alpe triathlon, which is a rite of passage for the majority of his athletes. And then um, very soon after doing Ironman, doing Ironman career. But yeah, in answer to your question, it, it was the World Age Group Championships that made me realize that at least at the amateur ranks, I could be the best in the world. But um, And that it would be remiss of me not to seize the opportunity to see how good I could be as a professional athlete and and was it at that moment after age group worlds that you you kind of when did you start sort of sourcing out to find the the best coach you could find and 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 decide to sort of pull the trigger and go all in was it oh my gosh what a difficult decision it was Greg, it (laughs) I was a full-time job and all the securities of it (laughs) I was so apprehensive I was so scared of what people would think um, of failure, whatever failure meant. So I didn't know what success would would look like in terms of professional sport, but scared of failure, scared of what people would think. You know, the the unknown of of a new sport, the unknown of of a lifestyle of as a professional athlete, and yes, losing the security um, of of a career and a career that I really did love. And it was my coach at the time, Tim Weeks, who knew Brett, suggested that I um, do a trial week with Brett. As it happens, Brett had been on the sidelines of Lausanne and had seen me race. Um, I said that I could go to his camp in Lausanne in Switzerland for a week in January I mean, after New Year's Eve celebrations, like the week after I was out in, in Lausanne, um, you know, basically on trial for a week with, with Brett. And um, it was 
him giving me the nod that made me realize that um, I needed to take that step. And you never want to look back and think, what if? You never want to be left wondering. And if you're presented with that opportunity, like I said, it would have been absolutely remiss of me not to not to seize it. But I gave myself a year. I said to Brett, look, I've got enough money to survive without any prize money or anything for a year. Um, <laughs> and um, so he threw me into every race. I mean, I did a race in the middle of Bangkok. I was swimming in the river in the middle of Bangkok because it had a thousand pound prize money. And I, you know, I'm swimming, you know, through cows, dead cows and, you know, dog <laughs> turds and probably a few dead <laughs> oh, <laughs> and, and, you know, chemical effluent and all of this. And you're swimming through it. And I, I won that race. I won a thousand pound. But again, he's yeah, very clever, maybe not necessarily in, in throwing me into those kind of conditions, but in terms of enabling me to develop that financial um, or develop that, have that financial stability to then believe that I could make a make a go of make a go of it because um, they're like they're like little pats on the back. Um, whether it, I, I'm not saying it's all about the finances, but I, I know in my own career it was a little bit of the finance and the success was a little pat on the back. It was a little measuring stick. It wasn't so much about the money. It was just saying, okay, you're on the right track. And it was that little bit of it helped you with that confidence going going forward. Um, and that was so. Once you'd started going with Brett, you started having these successes in Asia, and um, and then I think you went back to Europe. Then I, I assume for for that summer of two thousand and seven, was it still focusing on the Olympic Games, or when did it start to become okay? I'm going to do Ironman, and I'm going to become a long course athlete because yeah. you know, obviously, two thousand eight came and went, and then, but here you are, yeah. Ironman, yeah. So I was blessed to train with some of the best, if not the best athletes in the world, um, Olympic distance and an Ironman athlete, especially on the female side of things. Um, and I was very much focused on Olympic distance training in terms of volume. Um, and I wasn't, and I, throughout my career, remained so... I, uh, I wasn't a high volume athlete. So what was interesting is that I don't think I ever trained specifically for an Ironman in a conventional way. I wasn't doing the training that the likes of Hilary Biscay or, or Bella Comerford now Bayless um, or um, Belinda Granger were doing. I was doing more, you know, a, a program that was more akin to Nicola Spirig, for example. But that was sufficient for me to race well at Ironman. Over, over time, that program was honed, honed, the volume increased, but I, I don't think there was ever a step change between me saying, actually, Olympics are off, volume increases by 10 hours a week, we're now on an Ironman program. Um, what happened was I, I did a few Olympic distance races. Um, I, did, um, I did relatively well, but the, the, the field was not deep at those and Brett and I realized that my swim mm. wasn't strong enough I just wasn't capable of of coming out in you know 
in in the front pack. Um, and to be honest, I didn't necessarily enjoy that aggressive battle at the start of you know an Olympic distance race. I mean, obviously, there's a bit of fisticuffs in an Ironman, but it's it's not the same <laughs> as in an Olympic distance race. And and I that didn't suit my personality. And you know me well enough to know that I am totally incompetent bike handler. Totally. <laughs> I'm an absolute liability. And so again, riding in the pack, um, sitting on a wheel, I was rubbish. Absolutely rubbish. It didn't, it just didn't suit me. I, you know, square peg, round hole. And it was, again, Brett that said, you know, just, just enter outdoors triathlon. So we did that. And then a few weeks maybe a month later I was out racing Ironman career. Um, and like I said, yeah, there wasn't a step change in, in my program to prepare me for that. And I was such a, a novice, you know, I, I sought some advice from the other athletes. I borrowed a bit of kit. You know, I, I still have Rebecca Preston's race shorts. Don't tell her that. <laughs> um, that I actually wore in the world championships. I didn't even have my own race shorts. Um, yeah, so I was beg stealing and borrowing. I didn't know anything about fueling. So I was kind of cobbling together a strategy based on what other people were doing. I didn't have a TT bike. So I had a had my road bike just with my regular, you know, training wheels on. Um, so I was very much an Olympic distance athlete racing, racing an Ironman. Um, but again, you know, Brett showed that he could see something in me that I couldn't see in, in myself. You've mentioned a couple of people there. Nicola Spirig, just for people that don't know or, or, or maybe new to the show, it, Nicola is an uh, Olympic gold medalist from 2012 and silver medalist at the 2016 Olympics and I think it was maybe fifth or sixth at the Beijing Olympics. So an incredible athlete in her own right and like you said, you had the best around you to see what they were capable of um so you had a perfect yardstick to understand what the women's olympic standard kind of was um, it's quite funny greg because the first day i arrived at the camp it was in thailand it was dark i flew into B uh, phuket airport i just got a taxi to the training camp they had these two houses it was all dark and then there was one athlete harry wiltshire was sitting there eating a bowl of cornflakes sitting on doing something on his laptop and i said hi I'm Chrissy and he said oh you're the new girl <laughs> I'm like yeah um where am I sleeping he said I think you're in the next house and he kind of pointed me to the room and so I kind of creep around go go to sleep in this room wake up um and then I was told I had to be down by the down to the pool at whatever 7 30 I arrive and there's this in the middle of this screaming row between Nicola and Brett because I was sleeping in Nicola's room. Brett hadn't told her. So all, she wakes up and there's this random girl in in um in in her room and, and Brett hadn't warned her that I'd I'd arrived. And they've they've got a really strong relationship, but they, you know, let, oh, yeah. they wear their hearts on on the sleeve on their sleeves. And I, I was just like, what on earth? 
What am I doing here? Welcome. I'm glad you're comfortable. I'm glad you're well settled. (laughs) He did. Oh, honestly, Brett did his absolute best to excuse my French, but but shitster. Um, And, you know, just pit us against each other. Oh, yeah. I mean, he carved me out. So I was a warrior and I, you know, ended up not caring what anyone thought of me. Um, But, you know, he was very clever in that kind I, of I love psych- it. You know, that psychological side of side of things. But anyway, yes, I was absolutely blessed to be able to train with with those athletes and and learn from them um, and pit myself against them, have them as a benchmark, um, um, and you know, have them as a as a sounding board as well. I, I love that story because I think it shows a. A true insight. I think often professional athletes, professional triathletes are almost looked upon as having this amazing glamorous lifestyle oh, of traveling God. around the world. And, and I think that one really displays the kind of the reality of almost the day-to-day, the, the, the tension within the squads, the arriving at weird hours into remote locations, oh, not really yeah. knowing what you're doing. And I mean, and you were you were so green to the world. Like oh, you, said, totally. you didn't even know what an yeah. Ironman was. You didn't, I mean, you probably didn't even know who any of these athletes no were. you're right I didn't and and in that way I probably disrespected them and I was I remember riding with Harry again I remember riding with Harry and he said to me Chrissy do you know what half wheeling is and I said no and he said it's exactly what you're doing to me yeah, you're, right now pissing me off and it just, yeah, it's annoying the hell out of me I'm, like, I'm so sorry but in a way yes I I, uh, I mean we can get to Hawaii now but it was that lack of deference that I had that probably put a lot of backs up because I wasn't a historian of the sport. You know, I've listened to your interview with, with Macker and and many others and and they know the sport inside out. They can, you know, cite all of the epic battles and recount them. And it just wasn't like that for me. And, And maybe I came across as arrogant or disrespectful in, in that way, because I just didn't know who, who these personalities were and I maybe didn't appreciate exactly what they'd achieved either and um yes but in in fairness I think you know it just was I mean I I, and you mentioned Macker and and Crowey's another great interview two good mates of mine that haven't always got on together perfectly but they're they're both incredible athletes on their own right and two guys that I think I enjoyed racing with or even rooming with at different events and and races and and even today they just they tell stories of whatever in the late 80s greg you did that or remember this in the 92 race i'm like i honestly i don't know whether you're making it up or if it's actually real now because my memory is so foggy when it comes to the history of the sport but but macker and crowey are both encyclopedias when it comes to knowing every detail of what every single person did if i had chris mccormack sitting with us right now he would be able to break down everything you did in your career every time split every result that's my point he knows more about me than i know about myself and it's, it's actually hilarious but i let, let's discuss that let's discuss your process going into the ironman world championships and i love the fact that you mentioned that you were racing in borrowed pants um <laughs> Because I didn't know you at this point, I, you know, and 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 I'm passionate Not many about people sport. did, Greg. No, and, and I think it was like, but but all of us, you know, for me, I was focused on the American non-drafting series. But you know, come Kona, like everybody else, I tune in. I want to know what's going on, 
um, and, and it's the who's who's there and it's the iconic race of our sport um, outside of probably the Olympic gold medal. It is the event. And, you know, we're friends with a number of the, the women that were racing and obviously a lot of the men that were racing I'd raced against. So I was very into the race. Um, and I'd actually flown there. That's right. We were down there, both Laura and I had gone to watch this race. And and then here is you. And I remember it was like a black outfit. I don't think, did you have any logos on your top? Well, I, don't I, I, I ironed my only logo, which was the team <laughs> logo. I ironed it on the night before. <laughs> On and, the, and I'm on not even tankini, sure that on a tankini that I'd bought two days prior at a shop in in Kona, wearing the shoes that I also bought that day because I realised in Ironman Korea that my shoes were probably a, half a size, if not a size too small, so I needed new shoes as well. <laughs> <laughs> so, so take us through this just incredible day because to get, I mean it's not only about the day. It's like you're saying it's trying to get the nutrition and the gear and everything sorted. You'd done one Ironman and that was the Korean Ironman, which you won um, and came seventh overall, I believe. Um, and it's a very hot and humid, tough race career. Anybody that's ever done it, just brutal. Um, you'd done the Alp Duez Triathlon, which is just, I never did it myself. One of the regrets mm, I have phenomenal. in my career is that I never got yeah. to do it. It's just, And you'd won that. So you'd obviously gone, okay, I've got some strengths and ability at this, but you were such an unknown when it came to Kona Ironman. So I want to know when did you get to the island? Yeah. Was anybody interviewing you? Did anybody talk to you? Were there any? Did you have any sponsors? Give me that whole rundown because it is just so random. I love it. <laughs> okay. So let me say first of all that I I annihilate myself in training. So physically, I I was well trained. For that race, so I don't want the people to think that I kind of just rocked up, you know, just <laughs> no. on my on my, you know, borrowed bike, whatever. You know, I trained hard. I've always been really diligent, um, having had issues with eating about nutrition and about fueling fueling for performance. I wouldn't say I had a fully developed strategy, but in terms of my daily diet, it's also it's always been something that I've focused on. We were based in Thailand, so I was getting, you know, regular massage once a week. So in terms of training in the lead up, you know, I I trained um pretty well for the mm. for the race um but like you said i, I was incredibly green I, I i got my time trial bike five weeks before um and race wheels as well um a few weeks before i flew to the island a week before of all of you know i qualified six weeks before so the race so all of the accommodation had sold out i wouldn't have even known where to have stayed you know had there been accommodation available but um as it turned out i was kind of halfway up the hill um, in accommodation that I was sharing with um, a Spanish guy. So I was sharing a room with a Spanish guy. We had two twin beds and there was a double bed, which a, um, a British athlete had. The kitchen was outside. I was too tight with money, so I didn't rent a car. So I was cycling up and down this hill, my huge rucksack on my back after going to the <laughs> shops every day. Um, so the preparations were were comedic. Um it, if you compare them to, you know, the attention to detail that I paid, you know, in subsequent years, um, I broke my pedal, uh, my, my cleat, um, the 
two or three days before. Again, too tight with money. So I went to this car garage and said, look, have you got some really strong industrial glue? And they put it in there. So that they that <laughs> fixed the, the kind of spindle on the pedal. Um, so I was just praying for the whole bike ride that that wouldn't, that wouldn't break. Like I said, shopping for kit. In answer to your question, no interviews. Um, oh, maybe one with a British magazine, um, but they wouldn't have been in attendance. Um, I obviously didn't go to the press conference. I went to the pro athlete briefing and was just utterly intimidated <laughs> by <laughs> all of these, you know, all of these athletes there. Um, but having said all of that, I think going into the race, liberated of expectation, Mm. was a real blessing and I've heard a number of different athletes that you've you've spoken to say that and it and it really is when you can go in and there's no weight of expectation um I don't want to call them obligations media and sponsor obligations but they are but this makes them sound like a real burden when they're you know they're not they're part of the job but there were no oblig other obligations um and there were no there were no kind of external extrinsic expectations on me. I had an expectation for myself and that was to try and get into the top 10. You know, I like I said I had my benchmarks in terms of the athletes that I was you know was training with and could see how they'd performed in in previous years. So I went in wanting to try and and get into the top 10 on on the podium. Um which, you know, is a phenomenal and would have been, a, you know, a phenomenal achievement, something I would have been very incredibly proud of. I, I always remember what, again, Brett said to me before the race, and he never gave me an expected outcome. He never said you could win this race. He never said you could get into the top three, you could get into the top ten. All he said was, don't defer to anybody. And it was a really interesting piece of advice because I think often you go into a race like the World Ironman Championships, overcome with deference for the occasion and for your fellow competitors, so much so that it becomes overwhelming mm. and you feel that you need to compete at a level that you've preconceived if that makes sense. Mm. So I'm only worthy of a top 10. I'll race to that. Whereas his words, his advice to me was, you know, don't defer to anyone. And I didn't. So I race liberated and I just went out and wanted to do the very, very best I could. And I often reflect back and I think to myself, how can someone without a laser sharp focus on a goal become world champion and I think it's because on that day I was liberated I just raced um unconstrained um but that's not to say it wasn't a huge surprise when I went into the lead <laughs> honestly um it, I, I I love all of that I, I love the the liberation of expectations. I think that's a, a fantastic quote, and I and I also love the quote of "Don't defer to anybody," because I think we all do get that, and 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 I think um, 
that is something that you're trying to, I think, even when I think back, we've mentioned Mac already, but his imposter syndrome, you know, of when he won his first world title in 97, he didn't feel like he belonged because he, he was put everybody else up on these pedestals. And so I think that feedback of Brett to you is like, look, just play the game. You know, it, it, it's like go and allow yourself to just do the very best you can without I love that. Deferring to anybody. I think that's that's absolutely perfectly said. And um, understanding convention. You know, convention would have told us that there's a rite of passage mm-hmm. that you have to tread to get to the top of the world. And you don't win on your first attempt. <laughs> you've, you know, you've got to pay your dues. Just a quick mini break before we get back to the show. I just want to remind you guys to go check out athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Sign up and get your free 20 daily travel packets with your first order of $79 added value. That's athleticgreens.com forward slash Greg. Isn't it funny? It's that whole deserved thing. I had yeah. that Hamish Carter interview I had and he said, look, Simon Whitfield didn't deserve to win that 2000. But then he's like... The person that deserves to win is the person that wins. You know, it's like this this combination of thinking at the time that you have to do this rite of passage, that you have to perform along the way in order to win a certain race. And it's like, no, you get yourself on the start line and then whoever wins deserves to win. You know, it's in terms of there's no such thing as being deserved. It's whoever wins deserved it. I mean, at the end of the day, everybody prepares the best they can. It's like you said, and I've seen you train. Um, and, and for all listeners out there, you want to see somebody that just knows how to take themselves to the nice edge and sustain <laughs> it for a long, long time. It's Chrissy Wellington. I remember we'll get to that in a sec, but watching you train around Boulder and even when your body was half broken and you kept pushing, it was like, uh, wow, she really wants this. <laughs> so I don't know if that's going- how we should be celebrated. Or- <laughs> oh, I know. I was, I was a but yeah, no, definitely I um- – but yeah, that mentality of the kind, <laughs> the, the kind of work that you would have put into that 07, my point is that kind of work that you would have done in those months, uh, six months block um, of leading up to Kona Ironman. Um, it, it looks like you came from nowhere, but I, I, I know the kind of work that you would have done. And, and so you move to the front in that race. You end up holding on to the win, beating a Samantha McGlone, who was a friend of ours at the time, who I think was going in very excited to to win and, and end up being very disappointed, I think, finishing second. You, you've beaten all the favourites from Kate Major, Joanna Lorne, Rebecca Preston, and um, I'm, I'm mentioning, I know I'm missing a few, yeah, Belinda Belinda Ranger, and, um, you know, Natasha, just a, all you know, incredible yeah. group of women that all between them had hundreds of Ironman's, between them, Ironman victories and, and just incredible amount of talent. And and, and here you are, you, you win with a, a nine hours and eight minutes and change um, with a, a sub three-hour marathon. You finally did that sub three-hour yeah, marathon, yeah. you know, yeah. four, four or five years after the fact of, of when you'd yeah. wanted to do it. Um, but you did it in Hawaii after a brutal swim bike. <laughs> so tell me, crossing that line, mm. When nobody wins on debut, by the way, I think there's one or two others, that, uh, and the names, forgive me, uh, I have to have people they can they can write me and let me know. Um, I know we've had a couple, but very very rare does it happen that you win on debut. Um, 
and especially with no short course background, no other triathlon background. And, and here you were. What was that feeling like? Was a, How was the response of your peers and the media mm. and everybody else around you to that win? It was surprising, surreal. I was just utterly incredulous, um, euphoric, amazed, relieved, happy, you know, all of, all of the emotions that, that you might expect. I, I remember running down a leaky drive and um, the native Hawaiians blew into a conch shell and it's a very dull sound and I thought people were booing me because they <laughs> didn't know probably I was delirious from you know having run a marathon but um you know I thought people were booing me because they didn't want me to win because they didn't know who I was yeah. um and then the second thought was you know oh my gosh I've got to lift this tape above my head if I shave my armpits you have all of these <laughs> random, really you random thoughts going through your head but you know, honestly, it's a moment that changed my life forever. But I was as surprised as anyone else, but absolutely elated um, and very unprepared for it. Um, I hadn't, you know, had to do a lot of media work prior to that. I'd done a lot of public speaking in, in my previous job, but not of this so I didn't have any kind of athletic representation in the form of management. I had one, a, one friend was racing um, and another, uh, Declan and another friend, Aska, you can drip, an amazing um, uh, sports nutritionist. Um, he was there. So I knew a couple of people. So Aska actually acted as my kind of quasi manager because I was getting all these business cards thrust in my face and, you know, obviously a huge privilege, but I, I didn't know what to do. You know, I, it was the first time I'd ever been offered, you know, sponsorship and, and endorsement opportunities. First time I'd ever sat in a, in a press conference of that, of that sort. So, um, it was exhilarating and it was exciting and I enjoyed every minute of it, but I definitely understand why people would say that they felt like a fraud or that they, you know, had some kind of imposter syndrome. I, I, I was left wondering how I'd managed to win. I, I, because it was unexpected. I, I thought, well, I've only won. Maybe the others all had a bad day. So maybe it was just, I had a good day. The others, you know, didn't perform to their potential or had a bad day, but you know, come, you know, the next Ironman, the next race, then, you know, I won't emerge kind of mm. on top. And so I think, yeah, it was just a, it was an incredible surprise. And I was just left with the, <laughs> the question of how on earth did I manage to do that? But what struck me almost immediately about, was what a wonderful, wonderful opportunity it was. And I had never been to a an awards banquet um, before um, of the size and scale that there is at, um, at the Ironman World Championships with three or 4,000 people. 
all in a parking lot around these <laughs> tables. Um, but I knew I had to deliver a speech. I'd never listened to any of the speeches um, that had been given before. I certainly hadn't ever watched races on YouTube, let alone listen to any of the, the recorded speeches on YouTube. But I knew intuitively what I needed to say and the messages that I needed to convey that day. Um, and I think that's what struck me on about being world champion is what a phenomenal privilege it is and what an opportunity it is to shout from the rooftops mm. about the things that actually really, really do matter. And I just tried to, to use that platform, I guess, to the fullest extent. So that was almost the, the first time that, you know, after you'd spoken to Brett earlier in the year or late the following year was, you know, your reason why. And, and suddenly here's your first really great opportunity to, to express why you're doing what you're doing um, to everybody and start, and, and start sending the message out that you were hoping to do. And, and I think that's, that's the incredible thing about you. You've always been very true to yourself about why you were doing it in the first place. Um, did you feel like when, when I had Kate Courtney on the show, um, the mountain bike world champion and, and world cup series champion, she said, look, I won the world championship at 23 and, and everybody. And then there was a the pressure of, you know, was that a fluke? And then, and looking at your resume, she went on to win fairly rapidly thereafter. And then everybody's like, oh, she's never going to lose. So the pressure changed. Did you, I mean, in terms of that sort of that first race, was there that feeling of that was a fluke? Was anybody saying that kind of thing? That must have been a fluke. Was there a pressure that came from that? And then the second part to that question is when I look at, you know, you then go on to win the Australian Ironman, you then win the European Championships the following year and, and just did it get to the, did that pressure then change that, hang on, <laughs> Chrissy's never going to lose? Um. Yeah, defending a crown is always a different experience than racing as a, a newcomer. Um, I found being world champion to be really empowering. And there, of course there are times when it's overwhelming and you need to lean really heavily on others to take some of the the strain or the responsibility or the decision-making away from you. But I, I, I turned it into an opportunity. So manage the additional obligations um, as best I could. So they didn't impact on my ability to kind of execute in training or, 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 in, or in racing, um, but very much saw them as as privileges and as blessings rather than as something that would crush me and it wasn't always it wasn't always easy to do and you need some really good people around you to, to sometimes shield you um, from that um, so I wouldn't say I always I always got it right but I I tried to use my position as world champion as a a way of elevating my performance. But of course there is additional pressure. There's additional pressure to defend. And when you're doing certain races, there's a pressure 
that I place on myself and that others have on me to um, uh, achieve a certain time, um, which is always an arbitrary measure in triathlon, really. But it's it's quite a nice, <laughs> you mm. know, um, kind of benchmark to strive to strive for. But yeah, I, I try to use those expectations that I had for me and that others had for me as as a way of, of elevating my performance. But increasingly, I needed others to to help me. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I want to go into the the team and the relationships in a moment, but but until I do, I, I I'm still just fascinated by this next couple of years where it was like you said, it wasn't always just about winning races; it was about crushing times. It was I, I I've just I've never seen in our sport such a commanding presence that you had in the women's Ironman field to the point that. When when I look at some of your results, I mean, I'm looking at the 30th of July, 2008, winning Alpe d'Huez for the second time, which is a long-distance triathlon, and you finished second overall. Only one man beat you. Um, then we go up Timberman, 70.3. You come sixth across the line after winning, win, winning the women's race and sixth overall. I mean, these weren't just performances to win races. Was there an element, do you think within you there's a – I don't know if the word punishment is fair, but this, do you enjoy taking your- Self-flagellation. Well, well, yeah. Do you enjoy, is that Um, something that you, I mean, I do. I I, I love that feeling of really taking myself to the knife and just hanging in there. And and I don't know if punishment's the right word. Maybe it is. But do you have that? Because, you know, you're winning races by over half an hour. You're destroying records during this time. You're changing the landscape of women's Ironman racing was that all just to race for a time or was it somewhat of a punishment? Um, it was to see how good I could be. I think I, as you mentioned before, I I could suffer so much in training that when I raced, and this sounds really arrogant and I hate to say it, it wasn't as uncomfortable as people might think. So, of course, it's uncomfortable but it's as much a psychological battle as a physical battle. So physically it can be uncomfortable, but I was never at the level of physical discomfort as I was sometimes in training. It's the psychological side of things that comes into, into play. Um, I just wanted to see how, how good I could be. Um, and, you know, a number of both of my coaches, Brett and, and Dave told me to take my foot off the gas um, you know, towards the end of the race. And it's just not in my nature. It's just not in my nature to, you know, cruise to a victory um, because then I won't know how how fast I, I could have gone. And it wasn't about the time on the clock because that's not the measure of success. It's that feeling that you've pushed yourself to the fullest extent possible over eight, nine hours um, to that finish line. Um, and maybe that's why I had such a short career in that I perhaps crushed myself in the, in, in the way in which I trained and raced. It was an in, with an intensity that potentially was, if not physically, mentally, unsustainable I I don't know I've never really thought 
of it in the depth that I'm now, you know, speaking to you about it, actually. But may- maybe it just wasn't sustainable that the way in which I trained and raced and, and doing three Ironmans, apart from 2010, when I when I broke my wrist very early on, I had to miss my early season one. You know, three Ironmans trying to peak and be the best athlete you could be for, for those three Ironman races, um, you know, takes its takes its toll and, and requires a level of in, intensity that maybe I you know I couldn't have sustained I, you know I, I don't know because I would maybe touch on um, the well, transition I think, away well, I think wrong, there's, a, I, there, there's a combination there isn't it? I mean for, firstly you started the sport fairly late at 30 and so mm. you know obviously that you've almost missed 10 years, but I, I do think in terms of the intensity in which you trained probably even more so than, than the racing, but you, you, you fired a lot of bullets. And, and if we think about, we have a certain amount of bullets we can fire over, over our career, you just happened to be on rapid fire. And it was mm. like, we looked at five years where, you know, these performances, I think we've just started sort of seeing Daniela Riff of more recent mm. years being kind of your, and, and Miranda Carfrey, um, I think, you know, who came, who kind of stepped in, um, well, in 2010, the year you missed, but then after that she won a couple of Ironmans. And I think when I look at how the three of you have kept pushing that, that, that those times and the records are falling and even now Annie Hug. But I look back to you, there was incredible women before you. So I'm not I'm not cheapening what they did. Paul and Yubi Fraser, obviously, Natasha Badman, McKeeley Jones, the, the great champions that we've we've had in the women's racing. But I do see when you came on the scene that it was like, let's nudge all these performances forward another sort of half hour, 20 minutes to half hour. And and it wasn't just Kona Iron Man, um, like I said in the introduction, your ability at the Challenge Roth, which is an iron distance. It's not under the Ironman flag. It's a, it originally was at one time, but now it's under a brand called Challenge. And your time's at that event and you just kept pushing and pushing. And And the one I love there in um, the, the third time you won it and you did it, you beat your record by one minute and you mm. did it in eight hours, 18 minutes, and you won by 32 minutes. Um, and what race was I looking at? It was the South African Ironman. Um, let me see what year was that? That was 2011. 11, that same year. And you went and smashed the Ironman record time. You did an 8.33 <laughs> and you beat a good friend of mine, Rachel Joyce, who's finished on the podium at the World Championships. I don't know how many times, but excuse me, Rachel, but I think if I said four times, I think oh, she's at least I been said, on the podium. Yeah. And But you decided to still win that race by 35 minutes and and finish eighth overall. So you've only seven men are in front of you and the rest of them, as we refer to it in the sport, got chicked. So that mentality of yours to just keep getting the most out of yourself, and I know I'm, I apologize for going on here a little bit, but it's that I think is, I would agree with you to some extent that you fired a lot of bullets in that, that five-year period. When you decided to stop, and I'll come back and look more at your resume, but when you decided to stop, was it physical? Was it mental or, or emotional? Why, what was the reasoning there? I remember, again, at the start of my career, A, saying to Brett, I had the financial resources to sustain myself for a year. But then after winning my first world championships, I said, I'll be, I'll be in the sport, you know, four or five years. Um, and 
you say I missed 10 years. I think I gained 10 years. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're probably uh, do that, right. like, Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I think that, that that gave me just a, a totally different foundation. And maybe every athlete has a five-year period that they're at their zenith. It's just my five-year period was the only time I was a professional athlete. But before that, I was just creating this different foundation. Um, I retired because I had the race that um, enabled me to answer every single question I'd ever asked of myself. And that is how deep can you dig when the shit really hits the fan? How good can you be? And I answered that question and I had that battle within myself and I had that battle with my competitors and it was my perfect race because everything, not because everything I guess was perfect because I overcame things perfectly. Mm. All of those imperfections, I overcame them perfectly. And I proved something to myself, maybe answered a question that I was always asking of myself, whether I was worthy of being called world champion. And it completed me, Greg. It just completed me and I knew that no matter how much I could improve in terms of time how many more victories I may or may not have managed to achieve nothing would come close to the euphoria and the satisfaction and the pride that I felt at the end of that race and I I I knew that however difficult it is or was to move away from the sport, the, the sport that I love, the sport that, you know, gave me more opportunities than I could have ever imagined. I knew that the time was right to transition away. Um, I, I love that answer. I think that's... And, and, and just to give the listeners an idea of 2011, um, I mentioned South Africa at the start of the year. You, you then went on to win Challenge Roth again for the third time, um, like I mentioned, in an 818 and finished fifth overall, um, four men beating you there. Then you went and, and I did mention it briefly in the introduction, at the Ironman World Championships that year, you had a crash, um, forgive me, but I think it was about two weeks before, and it was quite a brutal crash so let's go through and dissect that what you're talking about that that the way you handled that race perfectly not that it was a perfect race but the way you handled it but let's dissect why it was and, and why it was such a good place for you to stop yeah so um myself and my now husband tom we were training as you and laura out in out in boulder and as you rightly said, two weeks before the race, I, I had a crash. And compared to some crashes that we've seen, um, especially in more, more, you know, more recent years, um, this, you know, wasn't as debilitating as as it has been for, for many other athletes. But nevertheless, you know, I had came off my bike. I had third degree burns down the left side of my body on my legs sorry I pulled a muscle in my in my chest and I I couldn't swim bike and run 
Um, I remember um, we were training at a pool. I got in, I did a length and, and Dave Scott, my coach and, and Tom had to, had to kind of hoist me out and carry me like a baby to the car. And that was the Wednesday. So 10 days out from the race. So I deferred my flight. I was supposed to fly on the Wednesday, um, flew on the Saturday, um, was kind of in and out of hospital at Kona, just getting the wounds scrubbed. I had an uh, ECG because they were worried a bit about my heart (laughs) Um, Mm. because I was getting those, those chest pains. Um, Fortunately, that was, that was normal. Um, I had some great care from Mike Leahy, who does ART, active release therapy. And he's always been a, you know, phenomenal support and um, was no more so than um, in the days prior to to the world championships. And I lent heavily um, on my family, on, on my friends, on, on my coach, of course, on, on, on Dave for, for support. Never once did Dave advise me not to race. I know that he didn't think I should race, <laughs> but he never once said that. I was always, once I was in Kona, determined to start. But I think I came full circle, Greg, back to 2007, where I could race liberated. And I wouldn't want anyone to go into a race, you know, injured. But for me, I I could liberate myself from expectation. And also many others may not have had the expectation that I would win because of the state I was in. So for me, I redefined what success would be. And for me, success was to finish. And I have an email from a friend and he's, and he's, he said precisely that for you getting to that finish line is a success and that will inspire everyone. And that's what compelled me to race. And I, as in 2007, raced with, I don't know, I raced liberated of, of an, an outcome goal and just, just wanted to go out there and do the very, very best that I could. And that, you know, gave me the wings, <laughs> I think, to, to achieve what what I did, but I went into that race physically and emotionally compromised, but conversely also empowered in some kind of perverse Mm. way because you release yourself of expectation. And again, it's very strange because you, you look at other athletes, you know, you look at, you know, the Michael Johnsons who from a very young age wanted to win an Olympic gold medal at, you know, 200, 400 meters. And that's what they set their mind to. And they, they, you know, they'll tell you that without that focus on a goal, you can't achieve it. And on occasion, I've proven that wrong. And I think it's because you just go out there and you're just determined to execute the very, very best race you can on the day. But having said that, although I was injured, I had this incredible bank of training. I'd had a 
phenomenal year of, of training and and I was buoyed by the success at Roth um, and and prior to that in South Africa which gave me confidence so you know just because you've crashed your bike and you've got surface wounds it doesn't mean that all of the hard work you've done all of a sudden goes out the window it's uncomfortable but Greg when we race we expect it to be uncomfortable Mm. (laughs) you know we almost embrace that discomfort don't we so you know I I had that residual um fitness that I carried into that that race um even though yeah you know I had those superficial wounds and you know my gait was somewhat (laughs) was there ever a point where you felt like uh you know 2010 uh for people that don't know you'd won the three years previous you woke up the morning of the race in hawaii um had to withdraw due to um fairly extreme illness i i I, you might have to tell me Uh, exactly what that was. yeah it wasn't it, it well i just felt off and some people would race I had a sore throat. I had a headache. I felt off. And Dave said to me, "Would if you woke up like this on a normal training day, would you train?" And I'd say, "No." And he said, "You have your answer." Other people would race. Mm-hmm. You know, we saw Patrick Lang last year. He raced with you know feeling rel- relatively suboptimal. Um, I I chose not to, and then went back to Boulder and had tests, and I had. Uh, strep throat and west nile virus i don't know i've never been near the nile but anyway i had west nile virus <laughs> and don't know how i contracted that but anyway i had a various various things that explained it but that was an incredibly challenging situation because you know you're disappointed because you can't race the biggest race you know of of the year and in, in in your sport you also, you know, there were various accusations flying around about me failing drug tests. Uh, you know, someone said that I was pregnant. You know, it's immaculate conception <laughs> when you're a bad <laughs> athlete, to be honest. Um, but, you know, so I was dealing with disappointment, frustration, um, embarrassment that all my friends and family had flown out that my sponsor had committed themselves to me real embarrassment actually so a questioning about whether I'd made the right decision whether I'd let myself down whether I was a failure whether I was weak not to start all of those things and so I went away I threw my toys out the pram and then I knuckled down got better knuckled down and raced Ironman Arizona which still to this day, one of my most memorable, proudest moments because I raced with my husband in his first Ironman and he got on the podium. And that was one of the best experiences of my life. But I think also that the experience in 2010 not racing and the self-questioning and self-flagellation that I went through afterwards almost compelled me to race in 2011. I was like... Mm. Look, you didn't race in 2011. You just get your butt to that start line and you just race. And you're not scared of losing. You just put yourself there. And so I did. Um, And, you know, the the rest is, you know, it's history. But the, yeah, winning that winning that race was um a defining moment 
in my life. And it, yeah, like mm. I said, I think every athlete wants that race that they feel complete. And I think we're often searching for a perfect race. And I think we think that that perfect race is, is the race where everything feels great all the time and nothing goes wrong. You don't get a flat tire. Your goggles don't get knocked off. You don't have a cramp. It, my view is that ain't going to happen. Mm. And the perfect race, race. Do, the perfect race doesn't even have to be a win. No, if I no, look back, some right. of my greatest performances, I actually yes. got beaten. But yeah. I'm like, wow, I, I really don't. Know. I could, I got beaten by the better, better man, and that was it. But I mean, that race for you in 2011, you know, if you look at your times and everything else, it was it was solid across the board. Your swim was obviously off because, well, you couldn't really swim. <laughs> um, so you've had to. You're in a different position coming out of the water, but it was also different. I think I was because- the only bike left, Greg. <laughs> I don't know about that. The only I, think prefer- I think there were maybe one or two. I think there's a lot of uh, amateur athletes listening. Right oh, now. Oh, quite those, happy with the yeah, 61 yeah. minute uh, for, for, yeah. for the 3.8 kilometers. But I know what you mean. I, know I was just mean. happy to get out of the swim. You know, there, I've, yeah. someone showed me a video of myself getting out of that. I have a smile from ear to ear because I think wow, I've finished <laughs> the discipline that I, I was most worried about because yeah. I hadn't really been in the pool that much in, in the week before. I think I'd done one or two swims. Um, so I was just whew, exhilarated to get out of that swim and just, just, be, on, yeah, just be on the bike. But, but I look at that race too and, and, and we, when we look at the three years, four years previous and, um, and the domination you had, this race was different because it was a – a young Mirinda Carfrey that basically settled in just a couple of minutes behind you, what seemed all day. Um, was it a different feeling to be running a marathon with arguably one of the greatest female marathoners we've seen in the sport of Ironman sort of chasing you down the entire way? Was that oh, a different energy that you needed? <laughs> oh, phenomenal. Um, you know, again, I've trained with Rini and, you know, I think in retrospect I, I never – took enough time to get to know her because I always tried to have this game face and this poker face Mm. when we both lived in Boulder. So I never maybe let my guard down. And that's something, you know, I look back at my career, there's a couple of things I regret, not celebrating enough after, you know, major victories and and really sometimes not letting my hair down and being my authentic self with, with people. I think I was, I was almost too scared to show the real me and, and to let my, let my guard down. But yeah, sorry, that's um, an aside, but yeah, phenomenal athlete and really, you know, privileged to, to race against her and, and her running ability definitely enabled me to elevate my performance to the, you know, to the next level. But that, the dynamics of that race are actually really interesting because I've been fortunate to go into the lead on, on the bike and, a lot of the Ironmans I've done and, and, and then retain that lead in the marathon. And, and this was totally different. So we had Julie Dibbons, um, great friend of, of both Tom and I, um, and she, you know, flew on the bike. So I came into transition sixth, I think. Maka could probably tell you. But I, think <laughs> I, was, I think I was sixth. Um, so Rini was behind me. Um, but there was Caroline Stefan, Leander Cave, Rachel, Julie. Um, oh, apologies, I'm forgetting one other person. Um, and so I came into transition six, so, which is a, a dynamic and a situation that I'd, I'd not faced before. 
Mm. You know, so again, that's why I was proud because it forced me um, to prove that I could race when I was coming from behind, as it were. So I slowly started to pick people off. I remember on a Leahy Drive on the way back into town, tapping Rachel on the back and giving her a little thumbs up. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I knew going into the race that Judy had a bad ankle. So you never kind of want to wish a, an injury on anyone. Um, and I was hoping she could, ple- could complete the marathon. Of course I did. But I also knew that it was doubtful that, she, you know, her body would be able to carry her through the duration of mm. um, the 26 miles. So she pulled out unfortunately and then i slowly julie julie had finished third the year before i oh she Uh, didn't so so she was definitely a contender when we talk about oh absolutely absolutely and and you know you've trained Mm. with julie and and there's no one quite like her i mean you know i pale into insignificance when it comes to hurting myself i mean she's just absolutely phenomenal um but again you know scuppered by by injury and I slowly began to pick people off and I had a fast charging Rinny behind me and had to hold her off. I think she came within a minute of me. I don't know if she got closer than that. She came to a minute of me and, and yeah, I'm running scared. Who wouldn't be? <laughs> <laughs> you know, that pocket rocket <laughs> up your backside. You know, it's uh, – I. Uh, I was just willing myself to hold on. But, you know, every race I ever did, Greg, people say I made it look easy. It wasn't. Every race I had thoughts of quitting. Every race was uncomfortable in, in a different way. But I drew on that bank of memories to help me through each moment. And, you know, we have these psychological strategies. And for me, Oh, gone were the days where I could break the the marathon down into 10k increments. Um, honestly, I was breaking it down into aid, you know, aid stations or you know, people in front of me, things like you know, just anything that I could do just to have that small success and put that, keep putting that step, that step forward. Um, but yeah, that was the battle with others that I don't think I've ever ever had before. And that was what made that race um, so, so incredibly, incredibly special. But I've never been so annihilated at the end of a, a, any race um, <laughs> as I was at, at the end. I was absolutely depleted. Such a great way to finish depleted. your career though too, isn't it? It's, it's like you you emptied the energy bucket at that, that race and, and for – just so you under, you know, you ran a two fifty two marathon um, to hold off the fast change charging Rini, who set a marathon record, I think yes. that day, maybe yeah, was it twenty or second? It wasn't much quicker than your marathon there, but but it was, you know, the two of you just were just an incredible battle, um, and, and you, you you held off. Um, you touched on a lot in that, and I, I want to talk a little bit more about your mental strategies because did you? train those was that part of your process when we talk about the physical training were you incorporating kind of mental strategies uh, visualizing any kind of affirmations or did you just kind of allow the physical training to do its part and um what tell me a bit a little bit more about that 
the psychological side of things, I, I think, is incredibly important because we've each seen our peers train. We know how hard they work. So it's not just about the physical training at, and all the kind of other detail. It's, it's, it's very much a psychological battle as well with yourself and then also dealing with all the other, you know, pressures probably, you know, sounds too negative, but, you know, the, the additional pressures that you, you have. And your brain can be trained. You can train it to cope with discomfort, to cope with adversity, to reframe things and see things through a different lens. So to see discomfort, pain, adversity, problems as, as opportunities or as, as signs, or as um, uh, means of, of learning and, and, and as, you know, of growing. And, and I, like anyone else, had a number of strategies in, in my back pocket. And I never consulted with a sports psychologist. It's something that you have to do in training. Training is about learning to hurt and learning to develop the, you know, the tools that you need come race day. Um, so I trained alone quite a lot or in very small groups because I think you need to be able to endure boredom. You need to be able to be in your own head and cope with that negative self-talk, you know, over, over a, an extended period. So that was quite important. You know, obviously you have the camaraderie of training with a group occasionally, but then also it's really important. I think that you invest time in, 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 in training alone. Um, visualization is something that I did, not that I'm lying on the bed in kind of a Zen like state, but definitely visualizing myself in terms of a successful performance, but also Greg, in terms of things that might go wrong. So I've had a number of races where I've had flat tires or, like I said, goggles get knocked off, all of those things. So I've had lived experience of dealing with those. But also you just need to run through those uh, situations in your mind. So when you get a flat tire, you kind of have that mental – or you, you know you've got that strategy to, to deal with it. You've, you've, you've already lived it um, mentally, if that makes sense. So yeah, visualization, positivity, positive affirmations are incredibly important. So my mantra was never, ever give up. I used to write it on the top of all my race water bottles. I used to write it on my little race wristbands, which I still have. I'd say board everything. Um, I used to um, write, I used to carry a dogged copy of Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, and I used to write excerpts of it on, on my race water bottles. So the water bottles on the bike, if people look very closely at the photos, have got my little hand, sharpie handwriting um, on on them. And then I'd have one at the start, which I'd then give away to to a child on the on the start line with my with my um, with my writing on. So just those kind of um, strategies really helped. I think having a plan. So being strategic in the run-up to a race gave me peace of mind. So a written plan in terms of what I needed to take, what kit I needed to have, and when I needed to do certain things. For me, that, uh, yeah, just alleviated the pressure of, of forgetting things. So that, that's a kind of practical way in which you can, um, you can prepare. 
again, breaking training sessions down into manageable chunks. You know, there's a session that Brett used to give us. I'm sure you've done it. That uh, You know, we used to do 4100s. So just over Ironman distance in the swim. So 4100s. I used to do it off uh, 125. So coming in on 120. So I'd get half, uh, five seconds rest. I was like a bloody net metronome, just bang, 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 bang. And you go into that session and you think, oh, my gosh, I've got 40 of these. So you don't. You just think I've got five. And then you think I've got five more. And then when you get to 20, instead of thinking, oh, my gosh, I'm only halfway, you think, yay, <laughs> I'm halfway. So it, it's breaking it down into those manageable segments. And the same is true of a race. You don't go into an Ironman thinking, oh, my gosh, I've got to race for nine hours. You just think, right, I've got to get through the first 200 meters, get to that boy, get on the bike, do 40K. You know, just just you, you break it down. And But I think the most important psychological weapon you've got of all is that lived experience of racing and training of pushing yourself to and beyond your limits in training and knowing that you can do it so like I said every race I I did I wanted to quit and then I'd reflect back on the race before when I'd felt that and I'd think oh my gosh thank gosh I didn't (laughs) thank gosh I didn't quit at that point you know I wouldn't have wouldn't have won the world championships and then so when I think of quitting I think oh think back to that time when you know you crashed your bike over a barrier on Alpe d'Huez and and you know managed to win and you remember those things and that's a hugely hugely important kind of weapon in your armory is to carry those bank that bank of memories with you so that those are some of the tools but it's you know it's training that you can help develop them and of course there are experts um you know with many more letters after their name than mine that can advise on these things um but that's just absolutely gold that last five (laughs) minutes so thank you for that no it really is because i think there's just so many very useful takeaways, whether we're preparing for a race or whether we're preparing for a board meeting, whatever we're doing, we've got a small business, whatever we're doing, there's so many takeaways that in terms of what it takes in terms of the process. And I, and but what, it, what I'm, I think, it, just reflecting back on what I've just said, it, it implies that I'm operating solely as an individual, as an island, and that is not the case. So I wouldn't want to claim that everything I achieved was down to me and my physical strength and my psychological strength that was developed in, you know, in some kind of vacuum, right? It wasn't. It Everyone around me also kind of <laughs> helped me develop these these tools um, and, and honed me into that, that athlete. You know, so my, both of my coaches in, in different ways – also developed my psychological strength by setting me a program that tested my limits, that made me question myself, that, you know, made me achieve more than I thought possible. So it was down to them that I could then prove to myself that I was capable. And then that iterative process of, of you know, developing self-confidence and, 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 and self-belief that is, you know, all too important as an athlete. I love that. You, you've segued exactly where I did want to, you know, before we finish up, I I, I do want to talk about your relationship and your team. And you, you've mentioned them 
throughout this episode. Um, just quickly before I do, I you referenced the the forty one hundred swimming that we used to do, um, and it's be, kind of become that common. And I used to feel awful, and I knew I would feel awful for seven, for six to seven of them, and then I knew after that I'd find a state of flow and it'd be fine. So for me, it was always just all right. Just get through the seventh one and then you'll find that rhythm. And, and like you said, I think I was a bit the same. I can't remember my exact time splits, but it was kind of you come in, I'd have, I'd have two, <laughs> two or three seconds and be like, oh, touch and go, touch and go. And it was like that, okay, you just find that rhythm and, and away you go. So I was laughing as you were telling that story. I was like, oh, I remember that. Um, but it's, but I- it's a microcosm of life, right, that you've just got to start. You've just got to take that first that step. step. That step, don't look at the whole step. Case, step. And there'll the be highs step. and there'll be lows. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the beauty of Ironman, isn't it? Of triathlon, it's, it is this microcosm of life with all of the challenges and the, you know, disappointments and the pain and the euphoria and the pride and the satisfaction. And that's why it's so utterly, utterly amazing because you <laughs> lay yourself absolutely bare and can answer really, really tough questions of yourself. Um, yeah, and then I think that transfer uh, over to parenting, running awesome. a small business. I felt like that yeah. with the podcast here. I knew nothing. I knew nothing about podcasting six months ago. Uh, but then it was like, okay, well, what's step one? Start watching some YouTube shows on podcasting and blah, 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 blah. All of a sudden, I wouldn't say I'm an expert. i got a long way to go, but I'm a couple of steps up into the staircase now. And it's kind of like I'm going. But I had to hit that first step. And parenting, gosh, for every parent out there, I listening, still need that. We're, we're, we're all trying. about to parent because I don't know. Honestly, yeah, <laughs> isn't it two steps up? Blindfolded. None of us know what we're doing. Yeah. Uh, I'm like, we have a five month old now, and he's still alive. He gives me a smile. I'm like, okay, I'm, I've got you, it. You've I'm, won. Doing, I'm doing all you've right. Won. He's still, he's still there. So yeah. he's yeah. Yeah, so let's quickly before I know I've taken so much of your time, Chrissy, but I do want to quickly finish with the team and the relationships. You know, you've mentioned Brett Sutton, you've mentioned uh, the incredible, the one and only Dave Scott, who's been on this this show, who I need back on, is just a six-time Ironman world champion as as your coaches. Um, Tom, your husband and your family. Just let's let's just uh, tell me about your team, your training partners. Just you know, a couple of minutes of just um, the importance of them. Uh, you yeah I I found it incredibly hard to lean on other people um I still do sometimes Greg uh just I'm so fiercely independent and it for me often it was a sign of weakness to reach out to others and admit that I I didn't know the answer or that I um lacked knowledge or or information but then you realize that Without those people in your corner, you, you cannot succeed or you cannot reach your potential and you're definitely not an island. And so as I progressed through my career, my my team grew, but it was still pretty close, you know, close-knit. So first and foremost, my, my, my friends and, and my family. Um, and... Out of anything that triathlon gave me, it was the gift of relationships, you know, obviously my my marriage, but, you know, strengthened relationships with existing friends and and obviously my family, but also new relationships. And I just feel so utterly privileged to 
have, have been given that gift through um, through the sport. But yeah, so friends and, and family, m- my coaches, um, absolutely pivotal um, and very different in terms of their coaching styles. One of very authoritarian, um, very dogmatic, um, which worked for me for a few years, was unsustainable for me. Um, for um, any length of time and I found something different in Dave which I think I I needed as as I evolved as an athlete and um, you know Dave and I had a very reciprocal relationship a a friendship but a a very reciprocal relationship where I could feed into my program and and understand and and ask questions Um, and I really really appreciated um, him um and you know as 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 a friend and and as a coach um utterly invaluable and then you know massage therapists we both know marcus very very well Mm -hmm. and as you've said you know often in in the podcast he you know he utterly selfless and and committed to to each and every athlete that that he treats and um you know you and, and i were um, blessed to have him on board. Um, like I said, Mike, Mike Leahy um, was also really important um, in providing kind of active release therapy. Um, I didn't have kind of a live-in cook, you know, bike mechanic, all of the, you know, I, I just, I, I didn't. We lived a, I mean, that's not an extract, well, it's quite extravagant, but a very, very simple, you know, life. Um, so I, those are the people, you know, in my corner. But, of course, I couldn't have done what I did without sponsors. So sponsors are part of your team, right? And we see it often as a, you know, double-edged sword in terms of, yes, I get sponsors, they pay me money. Oh, my gosh, I've got to do a photo shoot and da 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 But they're part of your team, they, they, you know, you're racing with their training and racing with their equipment, but they're, you know, giving you a platform and, and giving you that financial security um, that not every athlete has. And, and so they, they were very, very much part of my team. And I was, was and, and am really lucky to count a lot of my sponsors amongst, you know, really close friends. And, and they were part of kind of Team Welly at, at, at the various the various races and to some extent the media, right, Greg? Because I mean, not your close knit team, but the media are, give you a platform, they give you a voice, um, and that's really, really important for an athlete because it enables you to convey messages and 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 make a living and and grow the sport. Um, and so I also see, you know, them as you know being important parts of 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 my career as were my competitors we were competitors yeah but your competitors are in some ways part of the team of people that are enabling you to be the best athlete you can be right it means strive together in latin right and so and that's right because you're striving together you're fighting you're battling together and you're elevating your performance so in some way that they're also they're also part of your team and their victories are also mine. So I was standing up on the stage as, as world champion, but, you know, really all of them deserve, you know, mm. many of many of the accolades. Um, 
as well because it's it's really important and it's something that I had to learn mm. and it didn't come easy to me in in welcoming people into my circle like I said it I found it quite hard um yeah, I, I can appreciate what you're saying there, where you mentioned that earlier, and I did want to say that earlier. As, uh, as an athlete, I actually found myself training a lot on my own as well, and, and a lot of that was I was a fairly competitive guy and I had a bit of an ego and a bit of a chip on my shoulder, and I didn't want to have to compete every time I was out training, and, and I didn't want to have to turn my having – I didn't want to have to manage my ego every time I went out, so it was just easier to train on my own. I mean, that changed a lot towards the end of my career and um, had a lot more training partners, but you, you have just surmised – so many wonderful relationships. Um, we have a lot of crossover, um, whether it be Dave Scott, Marcus Mejias, some incredible people that have been in our corner over time and obviously our partners that we both met through the sport of triathlon and sponsors and media and everybody else. And um, just an incredible conversation. I've taken so much of your time and, and I can't thank you enough. Um, I know you, there's probably a lot better things you could be doing on your, your evening. So I, I really, really do appreciate it. Just quickly, what, what are you up to now? And if people want to find more about what you're up to, do, you know, tell me how they find you. Um, I'm not sure if you're into social media much anymore or if you have that, but um, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that would love to know more about what you're up to and, and how they could potentially get in touch with you. Yeah, I mean, if you've got two minutes, it's interesting to discuss the process of, I wouldn't say retirement because we're not retired, <laughs> um, but, you know, that process of transition away from professional sport that we and, and so many other people have, other athletes have have, have gone through. Um, and those are also have transitioned from one career to another. And it's, you know, I it was a challenge of my own making but it was a challenge. I found it really hard. Um, the lack of structure, um, the loss of a goal, um, the, the loss of validation that comes from training and racing, definitely questioning who I was. You know, my identity was wedded to me as a triathlete. And so I, I didn't know who I was outside of that anymore because it had become all consuming and you need to be comfortable in this new void and I was fortunate to move on from professional sport in an Olympic year so I focused on I published my book um, that year but also was really fortunate to be involved in some commentary for the Olympics and things like that so it enabled me to just focus on a few different things um, still train quite a lot but not have that kind of regimented nine to five commitment that would have been so alien at that time and but you've really got to be kind to yourself and it's not worries me like I said it's a, it was a transition of my own making um, but it was in psychologically really challenging to find out who I was mm. and what it was that I was passionate about and where I wanted to focus my efforts. All I knew was that I had Tom by my side and that was incredibly important. I knew that I had skills and experiences and qualifications from before, but I didn't know how to apply them. And you need to start to start that process again, like I did, gosh, way back when I graduated from un university, that process of introspection and questioning and reading. And I realized that what I wanted to do was combine my two passions. 
which are physical activity slash sport and development. And so now I work as global head of health and well-being for Parkrun. So it's an organization which delivers free weekly 5K events in the UK and in 21 other countries around the world. So every weekend, COVID aside, 300,000 people take part. They walk, they jog, they run, they volunteer at, at, at these events. And my role is to develop interventions to engage those that are less active mm. um, in, in, in those in those events. Um, so professionally, that's what I'm doing. And personally, um, you know, very much focused on, um, you know, our family and, and bringing up our, our daughter, both Tom and I work three days a week. So we have that nice balance between family and, and, um, career. And it's, you know, a real blessing to be able to, um, dedicate that, that time to her that I wouldn't have had. Otherwise, I, d- I don't think, especially before she starts school in September. And then physically, you know, I'm focusing on running mainly, Greg. You know, I, in terms of what appeals, but also what is time efficient, you know, running ticks many boxes. And I'm really enjoying the less kind of metric focused type of running so just getting off the trails and not being worried about split times or pace or you know specific kind of targeted sessions going out there running sometimes I'll run really hard sometimes I'll do a fartlek session sometimes I'll run easy a lot of it's off-road and you know focusing more on kind of marathons and, and ultra marathons but really really enjoying that but it's taken me a while I think initially when I retired I was too scared too scared to throw myself into a road marathon for fear of what people would think of me. Mm. And as enough time, enough water went under the bridge, slowly I realized that that didn't matter because I'm not for, well, I'll always be, you know, four time world champion. No one can take that away from me, but I'm not, I'm not that athlete anymore. And I know some people still look at me and think, Oh, she could crack out a, 245 marathon I'm like oh my gosh I've done a 245 half marathon um but you know I'm I'm still relatively fit but you know I'm not the athlete that I was but nor do I want to be nor do I want to invest the time or the energy in in making that a priority so I'll do the best in the context of my life I'll still do some training but I won't let it become all-encompassing no, I, I totally understand that. I, I um, these days I'm happy to do a 40 minute run, or or I go to the gym and just I'm I'm trying to put on a bit of muscle. But it's it's still funny the amount of people say, "Greg, you're gonna race again." And look, I may race age group in a couple of years time, and that's really just because I love the sport. But I'm I'm also loving just being away from the sport um, in the sense of I don't want to compare. I need to have five or six years where I can just get really really slow. And what I actually become I really enjoy is almost. I enjoy the process of getting fit. Once I'm fit, I'm kind of like, well, what do I do with it? So I'm almost, and then I get under, out of shape again. I kind of enjoy this little roller coaster. I know that sounds weird, but it's kind of like I enjoy the process of getting fit and getting stronger. But um, Chrissy, this has been absolutely fantastic. And again, this has been a, a long show and I don't want to uh, keep you any longer. Um, thank you so much for joining me. And Everybody, thank you so much for listening. I'll put links um, 
for Chrissy's book and the park run in the show notes, which you can find at bennettendurance.com forward slash media, um, which will all come out and you can sort of, uh, that'll have timestamps and everything else as well through it. Um, but Chrissy, again, thank you so, so much for joining me. Thanks a lot for listening to Be With Champions. If you enjoyed the show, your support would truly be appreciated. You can visit the Be With Champions Patreon page or you can subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Don't miss the next episode, so subscribe and be notified. For show notes, if you want to know more, please visit bennettendurance.com. I'm Phil Liggett, and on behalf of Greg Bennett, here's to the next time, and I hope you will join Greg again very soon.